Welcome to the A Group podcast this week, which is dedicated to the increasing number of people in Wales who are just about managing. In his 2016 autumn statement, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer shifted the emphasis from helping families out of poverty towards helping the 6 million families of working age on low or middle incomes. They've been labelled as the Just About Managings or JAMS. Now, the Treasury has no formal definition of JAMS, but they have at least one adult in work. They may have an annual family income as high even as £50,000, but their costs are also high, so they might have less than a month's income's worth of savings and a one unexpected bill short of a calamity. They may have their own home, but they're worried each month about paying the mortgage. There may be a car on the drive, but they need it for family and for work. But making the repayments on that car is still a worry. According to the Resolution Foundation Independent Think Tank, 35% of working-age households in Wales are classed as jams, higher than the 30% UK-wide figure. These are families who have at least one person in work, earning reasonably well, but are struggling to cope, often because they have the added cost of several children. Jams rely heavily on public services, a stable economy, low inflation and low interest rates to keep them in employment to make their mortgage and finance repayments possible. They've got maybe a good deal of things, but they're only just about managing to keep up. Minimum Income Standards, MIS, is a benchmark of income adequacy. Between 2008 and 2009, and the year 2014-2015, the number living below MIS rose by 4 million from 15 to 19 million UK citizens. That's from 25 to 30% of the entire population. And it's expected to rise to 35 or 40% of the UK population by 2020. As we saw earlier, the figures for Wales are currently 5% above that again, to almost half of the population of Wales, living below minimum income standards by 2020. Why are we talking about that on here? We're talking about that on here because that is not just a material, an economic, a financial problem. It is a spiritual problem. Because when you feel constantly on a knife edge, when life is a struggle and you're feeling held back on by God, that can be extremely destructive to your spiritual life. And unsurprisingly then, there's at least one whole book in the Bible about that. So, In the history of God's people, the prophet Haggai writes in the Bible for just such a time of struggling hope. The story goes like this. In spite of God giving them lots of good things to enjoy, the Hebrew prophets had been getting sent along to the people for ages, telling them that they were not being faithful to their God, breaking their covenant with God by idolatry, by injustice and by, frankly, general downright immorality. The prophets warned that if the people didn't turn their lives round, God would send the mighty armies of the big foreign empire of Babylon to conquer the nation, destroy their temple, haul off the people as slaves into exile. And, of course, in the way of human nature, the people thought it would never happen, so they didn't turn their lives round. And in 586 BC, it did happen, like the prophet said it would. And the invaders came, and the land was destroyed, and the cream of its youth and people were hauled off to exile in Babylon. 
Now, that's not where the story ends, because in 520 BC, another huge foreign power took over the Babylonian Empire. They had a different policy. They didn't want all those exiles, those immigrants, kicking around their nice empire. So they started sending people back where they'd come from. And a bunch of Israelites got sent back to rebuild Jerusalem. Haggai was the prophet that God sent to those returnees who come back to Israel under a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, whose ancestors went back to King David. They started to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You can read about it in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. And the future looked bright. But for some reason, it wasn't actually working out like that. Because the returned people had developed a distorted set of priorities. And they couldn't see it, but God saw it, and God knew it all. So in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, God takes the initiative. God took the initiative to speak and address their just-about-managing when they should have felt blessed. The people just knew they were short and struggling. They couldn't make any other sense of it. But God saw, and God stepped in. And what he had to say might have sounded harsh, but it was actually a merciful intervention to help get them sorted. God took the initiative. God spoke. How did he do that? Well, he sent two spokesmen, two spokesmen on his behalf. Possibly because some of what God has to say is going to sound a little bit hard at first, and possibly because the message needed to appear to be properly authenticated, God appointed two spokesmen. The prophet Haggai, And Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, both received a word from the Lord to carry along to the political ruler Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the descendant of David. It's as if the prophet and the priest hear from God and are sent to address the king about the socio-economic needs of the people at his government level. And there's an important principle here. Everything must be established by the testimony of two witnesses. And here it is. Joshua the priest and Haggai the prophet take the message of God to Zerubbabel the king and they go together. And here's the message. The message is this. You have been rumbled. The God squad turn up up at the palace or the centre of government or whatever there was and they bring God's word for the jams, the just about managings, And here's the message they deliver to the king, the representative of the nation, on God's behalf. You've been rumbled. Not quite like that, because it's the Bible. It says like this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But God is telling them what they're saying. God isn't deaf, you see. He's not deaf when we're praying about our shortages, our wish lists, what we see as our needs. He's not deaf then, and he's not deaf when we're saying or even thinking faithless stuff either. Stuff that focuses on what we see as our unfulfilled needs, our wishes, our aspirations. He knows. He's not deaf. God says, I've heard you. And you're saying the time hasn't come to rebuild my house. So God then poses a spiritually challenging question in verses 3 and 4 to these financially challenged people. A spiritually challenging question to financially challenged people. You've been rumbled. God knows. He's going to expose to you, these people, what he knows and and what you haven't realised. He's going to do it with a challenging question, verses 3 to 4. You think you are scarcely managing 
but are spending out on what you've persuaded yourselves are necessary home improvements. The infrastructure of your lives, while the infrastructure of God lies in absolute ruin. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, and he's talking about God's temple, while this house remains a ruin? There's God's challenging question. It's as if they've reckoned their resources, worked out their budget, decided they can't afford to get God's house right before they've got oak panelling in their hallway. And let's face it, oak panellings are not a very useful, just a decorative addition to any home. And the effect of all of that is that God's house is neglected. Here's why you're feeling let down. Now, the covenant God made with them was for prosperity in a fertile land. But they've been short and struck with famine, only just managing. In the land he promised would be better for them. <clears throat> Why has he let them down like this? It's because they haven't been faithful to his covenant, and he needs to bring them back to face up to the fact. So in fact, who's let whom down? In reality. You know, we do sometimes start thinking God has let us down. It's a good idea then, you know, sometimes to consider the possibility that feeling let down by God is the fruit of our letting him down to begin with. And, and considering the possibility that we're feeling like this to bring us to ourselves. Now, bear in mind, we've got to be careful. It's at a national, not an individual level that these folk get challenged. The message is taken to the king as the representative of the nation. And it's as a people that they'll need to put this stuff right. And this book of Haggai is, is not about individual wealth. It's about a plague that's come upon the people in general. It's their national problem that there are so many just about managing people. God's people living within the covenant and its blessings is what it's about. Not individual health, wealth and prosperity. These people, you see, were supposed to prioritise God's glory. Here's how it goes in Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you know that was in the Ten Commandments? That's at the beginning of it. No other gods before me. And then in Deuteronomy 6, in the Shema, in the great call to faithfulness to the people of God. Hear, O Israel, not individuals, but the nation, the whole of you together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And yet, and yet in Haggai's time, God's temple, as they're rebuilding, God's temple is left lying in ruins. And God's reputation lies in its rubble. As they've prioritised their own glory in elaborately doing up their own homes, oak panels weren't pretty when God's house was left abandoned, a stark ruin. They've economised on God as a nation. And the next question is, where has it got them? In verses 5 and 6, God says, are you really better off because of this? Here's how it goes. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Does that sound familiar? In other words, you are prioritizing yourselves and your own lifestyle infrastructure at the cost of sharing your good things with God. And the net effect of that is you are only just about managing. You being mean with him. 
and he's not blessing you as richly as you might have liked, to try and bring you to consider what you're doing, you've sold God short. Well, that's what the next few verses, 9 to 11, are about. What have they done? And, and, and so, why are they just about managing? <clears throat> verses 9 to 11 tell you why. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I, says God, called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. I did it, says God. I did. How do you sort it out? Well, back to verses 7 to 8, which tell them exactly what they must do about it. Not lament it, not think about it, not pray about it, but concretely do this about it. What are you to do? First of all, reflect. Give careful thought to your ways. Twice, in verses 7 to 8 and in verses 9 to 11. Give careful thought to your ways. Uh, sorry, in verses 7 to 8 and verse 5. Give careful thought to your ways. When things aren't going right, just reflect on yourself. Reflect on your relationship with God when he hasn't gone and prospered you as his people. Then when you've taken a very good look at yourself, go and act. Go, says God, and get wood and get building God's infrastructure, which is lying around you in ruins. You see, there are two parts to this turning things round and getting back right with God. There's the reflection on what you've got wrong, and then there's the putting that thinking into action. Now, now the technical term is repentance, uh, which is so much more than saying sorry. Deep reflection on failure and consequent change of behaviour. That's what Joshua and Haggai were calling for, bluntly, overtly, calling for that reflection and change from these people who were just about managing. Well, what's the congregation going to make of that sermon, do you think? Has, has the menu got roasted preacher on it for Sunday lunch? How are the people going to respond? The people's response is what Haggai tells us about next. Do you think the people took offence at the church sticking its nose into their wallets? Do you think they got miffed with God who came between them and their home improvements and their personal money decisions? You know, they didn't. They didn't at all. They listened to God's servants, respected God's authority through the message these men brought to them, and they repented in practical terms of choices that they were unwise to have made, they turned back to God and started again to pay proper attention to God's infrastructure. So, okay then. We do live in a time when there are a lot of people who are just about managing, and when the number of those people is sadly increasing. Now, of course, we don't live in days when the old covenant infrastructure is still the priority. The kingdom of God, since Jesus came, hasn't got the same bricks and mortar needs as the old one did. Jesus didn't send his disciples off into the world to build buildings. He sent them off to make disciples. But we still need to be supporting and building the kingdom of God. And our nation needs to take responsibility for its own spiritual walk with God too. It does take material resources to do God's material work in his material world. Whether that's going to be the work of feeding people's bodies or, as here, making provision for their souls. 
not just good work, because we tend to define that in ways that that, that are not necessarily his, but his work. Be clear, there are plenty of reasons available for our use as excuses as to why we would hold back on this. I mean, you know, those kitchen cupboards, they are a priority, my dear. So we're not living in days when elaborate bricks and mortar are the thing, but we are living in days when there's a growth in the population that is just about managing. And many of us have no doubt felt the pressure of that. And people are threatened by the temptation in times like these to economise on God. Okay, you may well want to say it's a more complex socio-political situation that gives rise to the conditions that we are facing. Yes, no doubt. But in Haggai's day, no doubt, it was a complex meteorological agroeconomic situation too. And those people in Haggai's day, they saw sense. They resolved their problem by returning to God in practical terms to the priorities of a complex but merciful God who in his mercy was telling them the score. The people who do not practically honour God do not prosper. Now, of course, there can be other reasons that you're not as prosperous as you'd like to be. You could be being oppressed, for example. And, of course, we need to say, material faithfulness to God is not the way to get rich quick. But when God's promised blessings aren't evident, whilst there may be a number of reasons for that, it is wise to give thought to what you're doing and whether any of your behaviour might be the reason. And only a mug is going to shy away from that possibility. So, so what are the priorities in our budgets? Okay, so we say, <clears throat> we, we, we might say we're believers, we might say we're being converted, we might say, we might say that we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is, your, where is your wallet in that? Where is your budget in that? Does God's infrastructure get a look in? What, even 10%? (laughs) See, prayer and giving to missions are the priority of a thriving church, a thriving family, a thriving Christian person. Prayer and giving to God's cause in the world, to missions. And Haggai challenges us to put our budget, not necessarily where our heart is, but where it should be. He says, give careful thought to your ways. He repeats it. Give careful thought to your ways. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, he will go on to address the people's shattered expectations. In chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, he will go on and call the people back to faithfulness to God and his covenant with them. In chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, he'll call on the people to fix their eyes on the future hope of God's kingdom. The inspiration that makes us want to live for God and be rich towards him as he's rich towards us. But here's today's word for the people of God. Blessed in so many ways, but who find they're just about managing. And here it is in verse 4 of Haggai 1. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses, and incidentally just about managing, while this house, God's house, God's infrastructure, remains a ruin. There's an interesting question for our land, the land of Wales, 
to address.